My mother and I are exactly alike. These hands, these look just like hers. This nose, my mom's nose. Mom loves to cook, so do I. Mom has the motto that goes like this. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. I like that. And she's an independent thinker. The older I get, the more I realize how much I am just like my mom and how much I'm crazy about her. Love that lady. But mom and I are also very different. And we don't have time nor the interest on your part to go into all the details. But I can tell you that one difference between mom and me is that I love Bible study. I love to go to one of Mike's classes. I love to teach classes. I love to just sit down and immerse myself in a good scholarly book about the Bible or to just read an ancient text from start to finish. But mom says, Carla, I don't need to go to Bible study. I'm still working on implementing what I already know the Bible says. She said, if I get that part down, then I'll go to a class and learn some more. But mom is approaching 80 years of age, so I think we could safely say that she is unlikely to take up what is one of my life passions, studying the Bible. Now, it took a while for mom and I to develop a healthy respect for one another's uniqueness. When the disciples were trying to launch the first ever church, they too struggled to figure out a way to value and respect one another's uniqueness. In fact, before they could ever hang out the first sign saying, church is now open, a fight erupted in the church. Now, if you've ever been through a church fight, you know the signs. Complaining, blaming, and questioning the other's motives. It's right there in the text. The book of Acts tells us that even though the church was growing by leaps and and bounds, yet there were problems. The complaint box out in the narthex was spilling over with comments that said, you know you're doing a lousy job taking care of the widows. You are neglecting the women who are the backbone of this congregation. Others murmured on their way to the parking lot that they didn't have time to work on the food drive while they were already teaching Sunday school. So they did what any good church does in a time of tension. They called a meeting. (laughs) And they got organized. They appointed Stephen and six others to manage this task of caring for the widows. In first century Palestine, once you were widowed, you had no pension, no property, no ability to earn a living, and so you had to rely on either charity or extended family. The church developed a practice of collecting an offering to take care of the widows. And there was plenty of money, plenty of food, but what they needed was somebody to wait on the tables to organize them to distribute the food. My mom would rather roll out a pie crust made from scratch, fill it with hand-peeled apples, bake it till crisp and brown, and deliver it over to the neighbor's house while it is still warm, and I would rather spend an extra hour reading theology or learning a new practice of meditation. But the author of Acts tells us that we need both kinds of folks. In fact, in the book of Acts, the word for 
waiting on the tables and the word for teaching the word of God are really the same word, diakonia, both serving food and teaching the word are the same thing. They are distributing the gifts that God has given. So whether you're serving the communion here at the table or you're out there in the community serving food to the hungry, you're doing diakonia, you're doing ministry. You are doing what God calls us to do to nourish the world with the Spirit of God. Both kinds of diakonia, both kinds of activity, are ways that we can invite people to the table to experience God's holy energy working through the community. Now, too often, let's face it, the church gets it wrong. There are scores of folks in the world today who have left the church because the church behaved badly. And it is easy sometimes to join those friends in wondering aloud if God can really use a bickering community of disciples to be God's saving presence in the world, or if somehow our chaos is thwarting God's spirit. Last summer, I hiked that final section of the ancient pilgrimage route in Spain called the Camino de Santiago. After a week of hiking, my friends and I arrived in the holy city and joined thousands of other pilgrims who had also hiked there in pursuit of spiritual vitality and peace. The culminating worship service for these thousands of hikers, pilgrims, those on a spiritual journey was absolutely amazing. Every seat was taken and the aisles were filled six and seven deep. Any fire marshal would have shut it down, but they didn't. And so the singing just reverberated off the stone columns and the barrel-arched nave and the incense swinging back and forth from top to bottom, back and forth, was a sight to behold. And then they served communion. But I, along with my Protestant companions, were not invited to that table. I was a little stung, but I admit that sometimes it is difficult when those of us who share in the journey following Jesus are not able to come to the table of God together. But I tried to push it aside because it was such a glorious moment, and I didn't want to remember that we Christians even can be divided. And so the next morning I got up and my friends and I began walking around in Santiago and I was happy when we ran into another couple we had met on the hike, a Filipino couple, and we said, come, go to the market with us. We're just sightseeing. And so we went past the fish stalls and the meat stalls and the vegetable stalls and the olive stalls, and then there was the bread stall. And there, the steamy yeast loaves with the hard crust were just coming out of the oven. And we stopped spontaneously and bought a loaf of bread. And with our friends, the fellow pilgrims, we began breaking the bread and passing it around and just visiting. And I realized, this is communion. God's spirit cannot be thwarted by any customs. There in our midst, we were drawn together into God's presence by Holy Communion.
church, every church, all church, capital C, little c. It's a messy place. As a group of people trying to follow Jesus, we simply don't get it right every time. We often have friends, maybe neighbors, maybe family members, sometimes us even, who say, I love Jesus, I am so spiritual, but I don't want anything to do with organized religion. In response to such a claim, the religious historian Martin Marty said, well, then you should be Lutheran. We are the most disorganized group of Christians on the earth. But the internal messiness of the church is not the only force that threatens God's spirit. We look around and we see external threats as well. In the book of Acts, just as soon as the church got organized, Stephen went out and began boldly proclaiming the good news. He does signs and wonders in God's name. He preaches and he serves dinner to the widows. But he meets resistance in the culture. A smear campaign is conducted against Stephen. It says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So the authorities come to Stephen, confront him, argue with him, accuse him of blasphemy. He's hauled in for questioning, arrested. And if we were to keep reading into the next chapter, we would learn that Stephen is eventually stoned to death, the first martyr. But what a terrible topic for either Mother's Day or stewardship. So let's just push that chapter aside and come back to the Stephen, who is an ordinary guy trying to put his faith into action, who is thwarted by the culture. You and I are fortunate to live in a nation that values religious freedom. So most of us have never once for a moment feared for our safety because of our Christian faith. We know that there are places around the world that are inhospitable to Christianity and a multiplicity of religious traditions. But are there ever moments when you are tempted to just Keep your mouth shut and your head down rather than to speak up about your own Christian convictions. Are you ever tempted to just go with the flow and not speak out? In the novel, The Well and the Mine, Albert feels this pressure. Albert spends his life working in an Alabama coal mine On the way to work in the morning, he sees Jonah walking to work, and so he slows down the car and offers Jonah a ride. But Jonah hesitates because in 1931, the sight of two men, one white and one black, riding in a car together is uncommon. Albert is aware of the culture's social code. The white men and the black men look each other in the eye and converse freely, deep underground in the in the mines, but when they come up out of the mine into the light of day, they line up separately to receive their pay and they cease their conversation. But Albert is drawn to Jonah because of Jonah's wise way of looking at the world, and so he invites Jonah to his table for supper. Jonah refuses, telling Albert that he will get them both into trouble. Even Albert's wife tells him to back off, don't make waves. But Albert will not take no for an answer. Eventually, Jonah agrees to come to Albert's house, not to come inside to sit down at the supper table, but just to sit on the porch 
and share a cup of coffee. Some, some kind of holy energy pulses in this unique friendship between Albert and Jonah. Somehow the spirit moves them forward against the currents of the culture. Well, it's easy for you and I to look back at 1931 and roll our eyes and shake our heads in dismay. But what about the ways that we, too, find ourselves reluctant to speak out and behave boldly? How does our modern-day culture inhibit us from letting God fill us and God's Spirit speak boldly in us? The famous theologian John Cobb writes that Christianity in the modern era has become harmless. He laments a modern understanding of God who does nothing and says, you know, the church does some good, but it rarely challenges its members to devote themselves to God. Well, even those of us devoted to embodying the love and grace of Jesus in this world today can find ourselves daunted by the reality that the largest single group in our nation today, the largest single religious group by sociologists who study such things is the 25% of people who call themselves unaffiliated. So can God still use us, the church, to share the holy energy of God's spirit that has the power to save the world? Some of you know that I spent a month last summer volunteering with an organization in Italy called Mediterranean Hope. Now, I know when you think of Italy, you think first of Rome and then of the Vatican, because most of the 60 million people in Italy are Catholic. So maybe you were shocked, as I was, to learn of this strong band of Protestants in Italy who share a common heritage with Protestants in America like us. There are only about 20,000 of these historic Protestants in Italy, and they are scattered all around the country, but they have banded together in a federation, and they were appalled and brokenhearted by the sinking of ships of refugees in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Italy. And so they formed Mediterranean Hope. They have four projects aimed at rescuing the most vulnerable refugees, the women, the children, the unaccompanied minors. They stand on the docks and greet the boats. They house the children. They relocate the families. But the astounding part of this story is that Mediterranean Hope used its relationships with its brothers and sisters inside the Vatican, inside the Catholic leadership, as well as its connections with the Italian government to form what is called humanitarian corridors, and rather than having their hearts break as the infants sank in the Mediterranean Sea, they began airlifting people who were Syrians living in refugee camps in Lebanon and flying them directly into Rome so that they could begin a new life with them safely there. This amazing pilot program is now being studied by other European countries after being featured on Voice of America. And it's an amazing model of the future. May I ask you then, how could this teeny tiny group of 20,000 in the midst of millions 
pull off such an amazing feat. It almost seems like they had a little bit of Stephen in them. They just couldn't be stopped. And so what about us? Might God use us for that same unstoppable, holy energy? I know, I know, you've got your to-do list. We all do. But Stephen did too. Stephen wasn't even an apostle. He wasn't even on the short list to replace Judas when they needed a new disciple. He was really only chosen that day to wait on tables. And yet, at the end of the story, Stephen's accusers look into his face and they see the face of an angel. I remember one day when my son was still in high school. Connor had only recently gotten his driver's license, and I was still getting used to the fact that Connor just showed up at home when Connor felt like it instead of at the time I expected him to be home. Well, it was dinner time, and he wasn't around, and I started getting worried. He had not always made the wisest choices as a teenage boy, and I wondered if he was in trouble. Maybe he'd had a wreck. He wasn't answering my text. I checked the school calendar. Maybe I'd forgotten. It was band practice. It was soccer practice. Something. I waited anxiously. And finally, around 9.30, he walked in the back door. Where were you, Connor? Oh, Mom, I was at a friend's house. I waited. You know her dad committed suicide this morning. And I went over to the house to comfort her and her family. And I took my guitar and the family all sat around in the living room and I played a few songs for them and they seemed to like it. And then they invited me to stay for dinner and, well, I couldn't just rush off. Just for a moment, I thought I saw the face of an angel.